We're going to open God's Word now, and uh, that song was also our prayer that God would speak to us through His Word and through the message that He has for us this morning. Um, Psalm 13 is found found on page 852 in your pew Bibles. But before I read, um, I think God has been working this week, or he started last week already, to prepare us for these words. When, when I got the call if I would fill in today because Bruce couldn't come, I started reading messages, and uh, this one, uh, like by Sunday evening at about 9 o'clock, I had already... Uh, thought maybe that's what I'm going to use, and I kept coming back to it. And, and in, in, at the time, we knew that something was going on with, with Arlene, Arlene Frugdenhill, Darren's mother, uh, relative to many of us here and uh, our surrounding church communities and beyond. And uh, it's, it's been a, maybe a tough week, but, but her testimony to her family is also giving them strength and encouragement. For those of you who do not know, Arlene uh, uh, was diagnosed with uh, a, a terminal condition, a, a brain cancer, tumorous, a tumor that is cancerous, and humanly speaking, there is very little hope. And we pray for hope. We pray for God's grace to her and her family, and through that there is hope because we know that God can provide a miracle of healing. And uh, if you don't have very many evidences of healing, pow- the healing power of God, ask Craig. He's standing there in the back. I talked with him a couple times this week, and he has a wonderful story. So this message should help us to respond to the questions that we raise, like David had in situations or events in our lives that shake us to our core. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. So those last couple of verses are more or less the text for this message. This message is prepared by uh, a pastor. It's, it's called Trusting the One We Blame, and it's prepared by Joel DeMoor. I believe at the time that he wrote this, he was a pastor in, in Trinity Christian Reformed Church in Abbotsford, but I believe now he is in Neeland Avenue in Grand Rapids. And he begins, Dear Congregation in Jesus Christ, One of the problems in dealing with a psalm like this is that right now, at this very moment, we're not in the same place as the psalmist. 
After all, where are we? Well, we're here in church. It's a nice, familiar place. We sit with our family or friends. We sing happy songs. We hear good news about Jesus and his love. This, isn't, this just isn't a Psalm 13 kind of place. It's a Norman Rockwell kind of place, a comfortable place, a place of thanksgiving. So when we approach a psalm like Psalm 13, a lament psalm, we honestly have to admit it. We don't want to go there. After all, that's why we hardly, if ever, sing the laments in our hymn books. That's why our pastors rarely preach on them. That's why we're shocked every time we come across one and often flip to the next one in disbelief and embarrassment. But you know, there sure are a lot of these psalms of lament, a lot of these bitter, angry, hurt-filled protests to God. Maybe God doesn't want us to ignore them. Maybe we need them somehow. But where do we begin? How do we sing a song like Psalm 13 with David? It's one thing to sing one like Psalm 40 with him. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the pit, out of the mud and mire. But how do we sing Psalm 13? How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? If we had to set Psalm 13 to music today, heavy metal would probably be the best choice. Can you imagine that in our hymnals? To help us enter into this psalm, I want to begin on some ground we all share, stories. We all have our own story that goes something like this. A kid is left standing on a curb. You're that kid. Cars are whizzing by. Every once in a while one pulls over, but it's never the right one. Classmates jump up and pile in. Your friends shout goodbyes and head home. But there's no sign of your parents' car. And so you wait. You wait and wait, and you wait some more. Slowly you move from pacing around impatiently with both your backpack and instrument case to setting the instrument case down in front of you to eventually setting the backpack down too and finally to sitting on top of one or both of them. The movement is all downhill. Your back starts to ache, shoulders slump, jaw drops, mouth starts to let out little groans. And finally you just sit there, chin in your hands, too dejected to even look up anymore. Anger starts to boil at the injustice of it all. But soon you feel it being joined by something else. Fear. What's keeping them? Where are they? Did they forget? Did something happen to them? Or maybe your story is about being left behind at the grocery store or about your friends forgetting to call you or pick you up for some game that you were going to last week. Or maybe your boss promoted somebody that uh, instead of you and you didn't feel that person was, was uh, the one that should have been chosen. But the gut feeling is the same in all our stories. How could you? We're starting now to get where David is at when he prays this prayer to God. A mix of helplessness and anger, boiling in a pot of fear. Boiling until it finally bursts forth in accusation. 
That's how David felt. But if we're honest, David's pain goes even further down than that. The anguish here is deeper than that of a kid left at a grocery store. The anguish here is something more like the horror and fear experienced by a person like Christian Rager. Who is Christian Rager? His story is told in Philip Yancey's book, Where is God When It Hurts? And maybe some of you have read this book. I have not, but it's been around since 1977. I read some quips out of it this week, and it looks like an excellent book on this subject. During World War II, Rager was a pastor, pastor in the Confessing Church in Germany. That meant he refused to obey Hitler's regime and was soon turned over to the Nazi authorities by his own church organist. They sent him to Dachau, a concentration camp. There, in the death camp, the smell of burning bodies and a constant fear that he would surely be next soon drove Rager to abandon all hope in a living God. No good God could let such evil win. God had forsaken them. Once a month, though, each prisoner was allowed to receive a single letter from a loved one. Rager got one from his wife, though it had been carefully clipped up and censored by the authorities. At the bottom of it, she had written a Bible reference, Acts 4, verses 26 through 29. Rager read the verses in the Bible he'd smuggled away, but he didn't really get it. The rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, he read. Sure, he could understand that part. The Nazi authorities were just like Herod and Pilate of Jesus' day. But how could he understand the end of the verse? It's explanation for God's allowing such horrible things to happen. They did, the authorities, did what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. How could that be? How could God let such evil happen? How could there even be a God in the face of so much evil? Rager, like so many others who went through the concentration camps, like so many others who have tasted bitter disappointment in their lives, like so many others who live in places of despair and oppression, Rager was in the place of Psalm 13. His enemy was exulting over him. He had pain in his soul. Sorrow split his heart all day long, and the face of the Lord was hidden. Listen to David's complaint and see if you don't agree. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? There are really three accusations or complaints that David makes here to God. Let's take a look. The first in verse 1 is a you complaint directed straight at God. You forgot me. You turned your back on me. He's shaking his fist in desperation at the Almighty here. The second is an I complaint. I've suffered for so long. We find it in the first part of verse 2. David's thoughts have quickly turned inward here to his own pain, confusion, and sorrow. 
And the third and final complaint is at the end of verse 2. The enemy, they're winning. It's a they complaint. So the totality of his life seems to be in the balance here. His relationship with God, with himself, and with others. And God is to blame. We flinch at that. I know, but that is, is what David is saying. And he's not about to stop at complaints to God. No, he wants action. In verses 3 and 4, he storms God's throne room to make his requests, his demands. Again, there are three of these, and they fit nicely with his three complaints. Look on me, answer me, give light to my eyes. There is really nothing modest or polite about these demands. Pay attention to me. Give me health and strength. Defend me, God. He wants help. He wants it now. He even goes so far as to give God a series of three ultimatums. Help me now, God, or else I'll die. My enemy will claim they've killed me, and they'll rejoice in my death. This is serious talk, deadly serious. What right does David have to think God will really listen to him? Does he really expect the Almighty God, the, king, the great King of earth and heaven, to answer to him? His argument rests on this. If God does not help, he insinuates, it is God who will look like a failure before both him and his enemies. Before him, because God will fail to uphold his covenant promises, and before his enemies, because they'll claim victory over God. The truth of this Um, begins to really sink in when we find out that in David's day, death was not just an impersonal, natural force, but that the Canaanites actually saw death as a person, as a god, the god Mot, M-O-T, Mot. In essence, then, David is provoking his king to battle against a competing god here, Come on, God, you really going to let Mott win? Prove yourself. It's God's honor and glory that are at stake. We see now that there must be a tremendous amount of pain, of anguish, of long-term suffering behind David's words. So much he can't help but lash out at God. So much he would even dare to blame God directly insinuating that God will be a failure if he fails to help him. He's probably lying on a sickbed near the point of death. Reports of the enemy's advances are being read to him, and he can't bear to hear news of the losses. For all the world, it looks like God has forgotten him, his people, his promises. And he's sick with fear. He feels abandoned, forsaken, left alone in his pain. His closest neighbor is death itself. He is desperate. We think of when our own stories have taken us to such depths, a battle with cancer, a long winter of depression or loneliness, a prison of abuse or addiction, a grave of a loved one. How long can we endure it? How long can we stand the pain an illness or injury that keeps us bedridden, 
a pink slip from, a higher man, from higher management, a door slammed shut on our future hopes and dreams, <clears throat> a breakup that leaves our hearts in pieces. Where is God when it hurts? How could he let this happen? Why won't he help? Why won't he answer? Doesn't he care? Our questions are more than fair. They are just. But back to Psalm 13. Does David get an answer? There are only two more verses in this short but supercharged psalm. And if the others shocked you, these two will astonish you. No straight answer from God, no, but something else. It's still David speaking and still to God. But look what he says. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. What? What has happened here? Has God answered? Has he acted? Has he cured David's sickness or saved him from his enemies? Maybe, but if so, David sure doesn't mention it. Instead, he simply says, I trust. Directing that trust to three things, really. God's unfailing love, God's salvation, and God's goodness. We are dumbfounded. How? David, how? Have you sold us out? Have you given up our protest? Have you gone crazy? How can we trust the one we blame? That is the real question that throbs at the heart of Psalm 13. How can we trust the one we blame? Christian Rager learned to trust the one he blamed. When last we saw him, he was in the depths. Looking at that note he received from his wife, perplexed by that quote from Acts 4, 26-29, about how a good God could allow the rulers of the earth to do so much evil. <coughs> that same day, Rager had to undergo interrogation, the most terrifying experience in the camp. He'd be forced to name other Christians in the confessing church outside. If he gave in, they would be captured and maybe even killed. If he refused, he'd probably be beaten with clubs or tortured with electricity. As he waited outside the interrogation room, the door suddenly opened and a man Rager had never met quietly slipped something into his pocket. But before he could check what it was, Rager was called to go in. He made it through the interrogation, which went surprisingly well. He'd been lucky, he thought. No torture. Going back to his barracks, he tried to calm his quivering body down. Then he remembered the stranger. Looking in his pocket, he found a matchbox. But when he opened it, there were no matches, only a note. Neatly printed on it was this reference. Acts 4, verses 26 through 29. It was exactly the same text his wife had sent him. To Rager, a coincidence was unthinkable. He had never met the man. And there was no way that a fellow prisoner could have seen his wife's letter. God had arranged it. 
It was living proof that God was still alive, still able to strengthen, still worthy of his trust. He hadn't rescued Rager, no, nor saved him from all his suffering. He had simply assured Rager that he was alive, he was there, and that he knew Rager was there too. With his story in mind, listen to how Rager later explains his change of heart, his return to the faith. Nietzsche said, A man can undergo torture if he knows the why of his life, but here at Dachau, I learned something far greater. I learned to know the who of my life. He was enough to sustain me then and is enough to sustain me still. Can Rager's faith help us understand David's? How did David come to trust the God he blamed? Maybe somewhere in that space between verse 4 and 5, God reached out and grabbed David, delivering him from his troubles, healing his illness, and driving away his enemies. Maybe God answered him with a quiet little note slipped to him by a priest, like he answered Christian Rager, or maybe not. In the end, it doesn't matter. Either way, David comes to the same one Rager does, the same one we must when we're drowning in despair. Psalm 13 is all about that embrace. Look at it one more time. Who is the accusation pointed at? Yahweh. Who is the demand made to? Yahweh. Who is trusted and rejoiced in? Yahweh. Three times David uses God's most personal name and each time he can't help but grow closer to him. How long, Yahweh, he cries out in anger and despair in verse 1. But at least he's still talking to God. Look on me and answer, Yahweh, my God, he demands in verse 3. But notice he's even closer now. He says so with that little word, my God. I trust in Yahweh whose love and salvation are unfailing, and I will sing of his goodness to me. He even boasts in verses 5 and 6. He's resolved to trust in God's promises based not on his own circumstances, but on who God is. So without giving any straight answer, even while David is screaming at him, the Lord has turned David's heart. God met Rager in Dachau and David on a sickbed in the midst of battle. Where will God meet us? How can we trust the God we blame? We've seen Rager and David move on to such trust, but how do we get there? There is one other we can all look to who asked this question. He suffered. He felt pain. He felt the ultimate abandonment. He too cried out to his father, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He stormed the gates of heaven with the same pain-filled questions we so often do. He did it too. And he was God. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. God understanding us. In him, our trust is born. 
That's the end of the message, and there is a prayer, but I want to just say something yet. Last week, Pastor Baumhoff had for us what he called a modest proposal. When we catch ourselves, this was his proposal, when we catch ourselves saying, but I like, or this is how I think things should be done, that we stop and ask ourselves, is this the Spirit moving? Is this the Spirit working, or Jesus moving amongst us for us to be a blessing to our families and community? That was his challenge to us last week. It was towards the end of the message. This psalm, I think, is like that. David begins this psalm in anguish and frustration with questions that make us flinch. Within a few verses, David moves from gripping internal wrestling with God to complete trust, from spiritual despair and deep sorrow to hope and rejoicing. He moves us from our old way of thinking in our old life to a new train of thought based on trust and hope, which then naturally turns into praise. Let's pray.